Today's lecture will be a continuation of things left over from the last talk. We spoke yesterday about the first, second, and third stages or tetrads of anapanasati. There remains for us to speak about the fourth stage or tetrad today. Before getting into this fourth area of practice, I'd like to um, make some understanding of certain words, certain terms which are generally misunderstood. For example, terms like attending to the breathing, paying attention to the breathing. Even translating some of these Pali terms into Thai is somewhat difficult. For example, in Thai we use the word gamnot, gamnot, for, for example, paying attention to or observing the breathing. Now, this can be misunderstood because when we speak of material things, we use the same word. We use the word gamnot to, gamnot to kind of look right at, to focus on something material with our physical eyes. That's called gamnot. However, if we are speaking of something immaterial, something mental, we use the same word, but we don't gamnot it with our eyes. We don't focus on it or fix it with our our physical eyes, but with the mind. And so we, we attend to it. We focus upon it <clears throat> inwardly. For example, if you're going to shoot a gun, you need to aim. You need to focus on the target. And that's a kind of physical gum note using the eyes. But in practicing anapanasati, it's not an outward kind of aim and focus, but it's inward. So to, to find the proper word in English is not always easy, and we're leaving it up to Pansantikaro to figure out the word, <clears throat> which he's not quite sure of. Um, we can use the word in Gamnot, there's a sense of to focus and to aim one's attention at something. But it also has a sense of to scrutinize. So it's to look at, but in a really alert, focused, directed way in order to scrutinize something. Another source of confusion is the thing or things which are attended to, which are scrutinized. In Thai, in Thailand, almost everybody when speaking of anapanasati translates it to mean to scrutinize the breathing in and out, to focus attention upon the breathing in and out. This translation is incorrect. It's far too narrow. 
anapanasati or mindfulness with breathing in and out. So usually it's translated mindfulness of breathing in and out, which is far too narrow. But we should understand that anapanasati is to scrutinize, to focus attention on some uh, one object or some particular object with every inhalation and exhalation. So with every in-breath and every out-breath, one focuses attention and scrutinizes something that's worth learning about, something important or valuable in life. So it doesn't mean just focusing attention on the breathing. In fact, we can focus attention on anything. And it is anapanasati if we do so while breathing in and out, while being aware of breathing in and out. So we need to have a proper understanding of the things which are scrutinized. It's anything of value, but we do this while breathing in and breathing out. Now you all know quite well by now that there are, in the systematic practice of anapanasati as taught by the Buddha, there are 16 lessons or objects. And obviously, many of these are not simply focusing attention on the breathing. <clears throat> so you can see quite obviously that mindfulness with breathing is to scrutinize these one of these 16 lessons at a time with every in-breath and every out-breath. Now, if we speak of anapanasati in general, we could speak of any kind of object. But when we speak about it as the system taught by the Buddha, then there are these 16 specific objects which we focus upon, which we scrutinize with every in-breath and out-breath. For example, if we, if we look at the first lesson of the first tetrad, which is knowing the long breathing while breathing in and out. Now, a lot of confusion usually arises here. Now, the words are to know the long breathing, but then one must ask, is one scrutinizing the breathing itself? Or is one scrutinizing the longness of the breathing? Now, of course, the two are not, you can't separate them totally. But the emphasis here is on the longness. We're not just focusing on the breathing now in lesson one. We're focusing on the longness and the reactions to the longness in the mind. What kind of influence or reaction does this longness bring up in the mind? 
but because we it's necessary to speak of the long breathing otherwise people won't know what kind of longness to focus on then this leads to confusion people then just focus on the breathing they assume that it's just mindfulness of the breathing but in fact even in this very first lesson the attention is not exactly on the breathing it's just on the breathing itself the emphasis is much more on the longness of the breathing yet we focus on this we scrutinize this longness and the influences it has while breathing in and out the second lesson is knowing the short breathing and so now one scrutinizes the short breathing but one isn't once again the emphasis is on is on the shortness so one is scrutinizing the shortness of the breathing just as in lesson 1 we scrutinized the longness now in focusing attention on this shortness one comes to see the very important fact that the short breathing is totally different than the long breathing if we just focus attention on the breathing whether it's long or short the breathing is pretty much the same it comes in the same place the movements are largely the same the difference is in the shortness as opposed to the longness so this is what one emphasizes this is where one really pays attention to the shortness of the breathing the kind of effects influences and reactions it has toward the mind so seeing that the short breathing is the opposite of the long breathing requires that we scrutinize the shortness of the breathing as long as the results of that shortness the third lesson is to scrutinize the fact or truth that the breathing and the body are inseparably connected that they are interconnected interrelated that they become calm together that they the breathing in the body are refined together or they don't get calm together whatever kind of thing happens it happens to them the breathing in the body together so focusing attention on this fact of their interconnectedness the inseparability of the body and the breathing this is the third lesson the fourth object or lesson is to calm the breathing to calm down the breathing and then the body calms down and so one focuses attention on the fact that the body calms down as the breathing is calmed this is the object of lesson 4 Now we come to the second tetrad the second group of four lessons 
In the first lesson of this tetrad, we scrutinize feeling. We focus attention on specifically the satisfied feeling, which is still rather coarse and excited. You can call it rapture if you like when it's very coarse and excited or satisfaction or contentment when it's calmer. But all the kinds of coarse kinds of satisfaction or gratification, these are called PT, and this is what is scrutinized in the first lesson of the second tetrad. In the next lesson, one scrutinizes the kind of satisfaction that is very refined, that has calmed down, is truly peaceful and cool. We can call this happiness, or if we wish, but the emphasis is now the kind of satisfaction that is truly calm and peaceful. The satisfaction of piti is stimulating. It makes one shake and tremble and sometimes even hop and jump. Whereas the, the satisfied feeling in lesson six is now very refined, very gentle, very peaceful. This is the object of the second lesson of this tetra. In the third lesson, we start to, it begins to have a bit of vipassana or insight involved. In this one, we scrutinize the fact that the feelings, especially piti and sukha, that these, these concoct the thinking, the thoughts, now in the Pali, this is just called, it's just said that they are the concoctors of the mind. These are the things that condition the mind. But the meaning is that it conditions, concocts the thoughts and thinking. It's feeling that conditions desire. And desire in turn conditions all the kinds of thinking. The thoughts that arise, the kind of line or trend of thought of the thinking, this comes from desire. But the thing that conditions the desire is feeling. And so therefore we say that feeling is the concoctor of the mind, of the thinking. Studying this fact is the third lesson. In the fourth lesson, we observe or focus attention on the fact that by lessening the strength of the feelings, the strength of the thinking is lessened. By weakening the power of the feelings or the energy of the feelings, then the energy of the thinking is weakened. One observes this fact until one is able to weaken the power and strength of the feelings 
in any in ways that are appropriate to the situation and to one's needs and so that one is able to weaken certain aspects of the feelings and then certain aspects of the thinking will weaken or slow down if one calms certain aspects of the feelings then certain aspects of the thinking calm and we can explore this more and more until we have total mastery over the feelings we can we can weaken them to the point they are totally calm and that means the thinking can stop one can have such mastery over the feelings that the thinking stops that for a while as long as the feelings are kept calm there will be no thinking because there's nothing to stir it up there's nothing to concoct the feeling so one learns how to weaken the strength of the feelings to lessen their energy in order to weaken the strength and energy of the thought one explores this one scrutinizes this until there is mastery over the feeling now you can see quite clearly that each of these four lessons has a different focus of attention we're scrutinizing different things in the first lesson we focus attention on the excited kinds of satisfaction in the second lesson on the calm refined kinds of satisfaction in the third lesson we scrutinize the fact that the feelings concoct the mind and then in the fourth we we focus attention on the fact that by lessening the feelings the power of the thinking lessens now we come to the third tetrad which deals with the mind directly in this one the first lesson is to scrutinize the different states of mind which arise the different kinds of mind which is to focus attention on the the different characteristics or qualities of these different states of mind for example whether the mind has lust or is free of lust whether there is anger in the mind or not whether there is delusion or not and so on there are these different states of mind and one scrutinizes them in order to see the different kinds of mind that can arise one of course is focusing attention on the characteristic the characteristics of each of these states of mind the second lesson here is to make the mind joyful to gladden or gladden the mind as we as we require in the third lesson we make the mind concentrated as we require this means that any kind of any level or 
degree of concentration that we need, we can do that until this is totally within our grasp, within our power. And so that the mind has the qualities of purity, stability, and activity, so that these three qualities are fully within our control. This is the object of the third lesson. In the fourth lesson of this tetrad, we learn to control the things that we shouldn't have in the mind, the things that ought not to be in the mind. This is a good phrase to use because it's, it's very general. It includes a lot of different things. So to control the mind in order to get rid of or to release all the things that don't belong in the mind. We release them, we free the mind from these things. This is the fourth lesson of the third tetrad. Some examples are love, anger, hatred, fear. To be able to chase away these things which don't belong in the mind so that even if only temporarily the mind is free of these things. So you can see in all of these lessons we've mentioned that there's a different object <coughs> to everyone. It's not just being mindful of the breathing. If that's all that we were doing, it would be the same lesson. There would just be one lesson. But there are 12 specific lessons, each with its own object, where we scrutinize one, one particular object at a time while breathing in and breathing out. The, the breath is apparent in the, to the mind. And while we're aware of the breath, we scrutinize each of these lessons. Now the reason we've spent taking the time to review these first 12 lessons is it will it leads us up now to speaking about the fourth tetrad, the one that deals with Dhamma. Through this review now we'll be able to more easily understand how to practice or how to scrutinize Dhamma, which here means specifically the things which, the thing which doesn't belong in the mind and how to free the mind of that on the highest level or completely. Now, literally the word Dhamma means all things. Dhamma in its basic meaning means thing or all things, everything. But here it means specifically by all things we mean the things that don't belong in the mind, the things that are, when they're in the mind, cause problems. So we're going to scrutinize these dhammas until 
understanding them and being able to chase them away in order to chase them away for good in order to free the mind of these things in order to do so there are four lessons now here when we're speaking of things that don't belong in the mind we can say more simply this means the the problems that exist in the mind it's beyond it's too much to go and have to scrutinize everything everything is practically infinite it would take quite a long time and it's unnecessary to study or scrutinize everything what we need to particularly scrutinize are the things that are problems for us this is what we need to understand and be able to deal with so by when we speak of things that don't belong in the mind we mean our problems things that are problems in our minds the first lesson here is to contemplate the impermanence of these problems it means contemplate the things which attachment has seized onto whatever attachment has grabbed that becomes our problem and to contemplate the impermanence of the objects of attachment until we're able to chase away the problem until seeing contemplating the impermanence of that object of attachment make ceases the problem ends the problem so that that thing ceases to be dangerous or harmful for us although we this lesson is specifically called contemplating impermanence you need to understand that impermanence to truly see impermanence includes seeing a number of other things as well that the more clearly and deeply one sees impermanence this that this will lead to seeing other things as well and so that the that insight into impermanence successively leads to other insights which are kind of reactions or or automatic results of seeing insight or of seeing impermanence impermanence means that things are changing all the time they're continually changing this is because everything comes from causes and conditions all things depend on other things and when the causes of things are changing then the things themselves will be changing observing that all things are constantly changing because they depend on causes and conditions which are continually changing is to see the necessary impermanence of things it doesn't hurt to mention at this point the greek philosopher heraclitus whose central teaching was everything flows or in greek 
Kantare, everything flows. He made a big deal out of the, this teaching of impermanence, but he didn't take it any deeper, and so things just got stuck at that point and didn't develop any further than teaching impermanence. And unfortunately, many of his contemporaries considered him crazy, although that was for other reasons. The Buddha didn't stop at the insight into impermanence. He saw that the fact that we must live with impermanent things, the fact that life is nothing but impermanent things, brings dukkha, that it is inherently painful living amidst all these impermanent things because they keep biting us, the impermanence keeps biting us and is therefore painful. In all these things that make up our lives, there's nothing that can, you know, that stays still long enough to be owned or controlled. That there's these, the fact that there aren't any selves makes things inherently painful for us. This word dukkha or dukkhang can be a bit difficult to translate into English in order to get all of its meaning. Literally, it means ugly or hateful because all these things that are changing, they just turn around and bite us. They're biting us. This change of things keeps biting us. And this is why they're said to be dukkha, or ugly, hateful. Because in this biting, there's a great deal of pain. When things are impermanent and have this inherent ugliness or painfulness to, uh, to them, you know, there's nothing that we can make a deal with. We're, if you try to make a deal with anything, to have it be the way you want, you just can't find something to make the bargain with because things are changing like this because of this inherent ugliness they lack anything stable things are empty of anything really secure or stable that we can control or own or that we can make our deal with and so they are said to be Anatta, not self. If things had selves, we could make deals with them. If they really had some stable or secure substance, we could make our little agreements and have them be the way we want them to be. But that's not how things are. They lack these kind, this kind of substance or self. And so we're unable to make these agreements. Things just aren't, don't work out the way we want them to. And so we emphasize that they are not-self. Even further, this quality of not-self also refers to the fact that things are not only, impermanent things not only bite us, they bite themselves. That they are painful, within themselves, and so they are said to be not-self.
this is the result of impermanence. Anatta is directly resulting from impermanence. The facts of impermanence, this painful, inherent painfulness and not-self are just the way things ordinarily are. This is the ordinary natural state of things, which in Pali is called Dhamma-kitata. Dhamma-kitata. It's just the way things are. There's nothing supernatural or strange about these facts. This is just the natural ordinariness of things, which again results from impermanence, from the basic fact of impermanence. And then why are things ordinarily like that? The reason is because the law of nature makes them that way. The law of nature controls things such that they are like that. This is called dhamma-niyamata. Dhamma-niyamata. It's just the natural law that makes things this way. And all of these insights can be summarized with the insight that everything happens according to its conditions, its causes, its conditions. Everything depends on its own conditions and it occurs and changes and develops further according to those conditions. The fact that everything depends on its conditions and changes that everything happens according to conditions is called itapajayata, itapajayata, the law of conditionality. Itapajayata or conditionality applies to everything, both mental and physical things. So it applies to a lot of things that aren't really a problem for us. They're not the real problems we face. Our problems are all concerned with our own consciousness, with our own feelings of pleasure and pain. And so we, it's more useful, it's more practical to focus upon the aspect of itapajayata, which deals directly with our own problems, with our own dukkha. And this is called Paticca Samupada or Paticca Samupado, which in English can be translated dependent origination. The law of dependent origination deals directly with all the, the fact of our, our problems. And so this is the aspect of conditionality which we, which is most important for us, which we need to see clearly. So you would do well to study this fact of dependent origination. Over at the meditation center you ought to examine this until you understand it clearly that, so that later you will realize its, its fact. Now when we 
this, these insights have been developing from impermanence and so on all the way up to the insight into the law of conditionality, the law of dependent origination. Then one will realize, one realizes that there is nothing anywhere, that there is not anything anywhere in this universe that can be taken to be a self. There is nothing that has the meaning of being, of actually being a self. Realizing this fact is called sunyata, voidness. To realize the voidness of all things, that everything is void of anything that can be taken to be a self or a soul. That all things lack the meaning or the value or the reality that can be taken to be a self. And so they are said to be void of self. Realizing this fact of sunyata is very important because this is the heart of the Dhamma which can quench our dukkha. Even our bodies, even our minds, even these lives here, even our very own lives, all of these are void of anything that can really be called a self. In the lesson that we've suggested to you of walking from the center to here without a walker, this is an excellent way to study the fact of sunyata. Walking without a walker, just to walk as a natural activity. Walking is just something that the body and the mind does. It's one of the capabilities of life, to walk. It doesn't require or depend upon some self that is the one who is walking or the walker. So by studying this lesson, just let walking be a, a natural function of the body and mind without requiring or getting any self confused into it. This is a way to study the fact of voidness or sunyata. Some people are unable to accept this. Some people just deny it, refuse to believe it. Some people even think it's ridiculous and funny. But this insight into sunyata, into voidness, is the only way of absolutely quenching dukkha. One can lessen dukkha in other ways, but the only way to totally eliminate dukkha is to see deeply and totally the fact that all things are void of, of selfhood, that all things are totally lacking in anything that can be taken to be a self, something which is in control of life or is the owner of life. This is the only way to fully eliminate dukkha. 
all the different things exist. You can have all of them if you like. Just don't have one thing, namely Atta or Self, the Atman or Soul. All the things that exist, you can have them all, but leave alone this thing called Self. Self is just a product of ignorance. It's just an ignorant thought, an illusion in the mind. It has no reality beyond that. It's just this deluded concept that passes through the mind. All the things that exist, exist. But none of them have any reality that can be act truly called self. And so in seeing that they are all void of self, one can have whatever is needed. This will happen best of all when there is no self, when one doesn't one doesn't cling to this illusion of self. Would do well for you all to realize the fact that this body and this mind can exist without any self. This body, this mind, for them to live and function don't require any self. They they arise dependent on natural conditions and causes, and they will continue and change dependent on those conditions and causes. But none of this requires any self. When we realize this fact, then we will stop clinging to the illusion that there is a self, to the the false belief that we need a self, that we have to be a self or have a self. When we can see the that these bodies and minds are naturally void of self, then we can live without the dukkha created by self. One should observe the animals and see that they can do their, perform the functions of life without any self. The trees and plants can carry out the functions of their lives without requiring any self. One can observe that body and mind functions naturally, carrying out all the things, all the responsibilities and duties of life naturally according to the law of nature, without there being any self. When we see this, then we can live without the illusion and burden and pain of taking these things to be self. However, there are some religions and philosophies that say that in people, in animals, in trees, there are selves or there are souls. This kind of understanding is not Buddhism. Now, one should be sympathetic to places like Thailand, where the beliefs and teachings of self, of eternal selves or souls, has existed 
way before Buddhism ever came here. And then when Buddhism arrived, this teaching of not-self then has had to struggle against the old belief that there are selves, that things are self. And so it's quite difficult for, for people to understand because they come to it all with a very strong belief, almost a blind faith in there being some kind of self or soul. And it's very hard then for them to understand the teaching of not-self. This kind of situation probably exists in most other places as well. And so one needs to be sympathetic to this difficulty of getting the message across for people to understand not-self. Because if we look, we'll see that our, the instincts, the instincts already promote from the start a sense of self, a belief in self. And then the, the way people are raised, the way we are educated strengthens this belief in self. Especially religious education in most places makes the belief in self very strong. So when we recognize this one become sympathetic that it's, it's quite hard for people to understand and see not-self. Atta has a positive quality to it. The word Atta is a positive word. Anatta has a negative quality and it's a negative word. And so people have an, a natural inclination towards atta, towards self, rather than not-self. People are always inclined towards the positive. And so this makes for further difficulties in the understanding of not-self. The one who has fully, who has seen fully the fact of voidness then realizes that things are just thus. Things are just this way. They're just thus. This is called tatata or tatata, thusness or suchness. Things are such. They're not like this or like that. They're merely like thus. Realizing this fact is to realize that the whole string of insights from impermanence, the inherent painfulness, things that are not, the fact that things are not self, the natural order, ordinariness of all that, the natural law, the law of itapajayata, independent origination, and then voidness, that all of that is merely thus. Things could never be otherwise. It's, there's no way that things could be any other way. It's just the way things are. They're merely thus. They're just such. This is, this is the realization of the arahant, of the perfected human being, of the 
the highest level of human life of the Buddha to realize this. We should continue practicing until we reach or realize this this level of understanding, this this degree of life where everything is seen to be thus, where we fully realize the suchness of all things. The realization of thusness has many benefits. Whatever comes to meet us in life, that is seen to be just thus. Something lovely comes by and we realize it's thusness. Something ugly comes by or hateful and we, we just see that it's just like that. Something frightening appears and one just realizes it's merely thus. Everything that meets us, we send it back with the realization of thusness, suchness. Nothing can come and concoct us, can stir us up, cook us up ever again when we, when we meet everything with thusness. It's just thus. And so, in this way, the mind is beyond then positive and negative. There's nothing that can stir the mind up into clinging to positive and negative when there is the realization of thusness. And so thusness leads to what we call adhammayata. Adhammayata is the mind that is perfectly um, invulnerable. Nothing can shake it or manipulate it. The unconcoctable mind the mind that is beyond positive and negative is called Adhammayata. This is where the, this progression of insight leads to this Adhammayata, where the mind can, which can be translated unconcoctability. It's the mind that cannot be concocted, shaken, manipulated, or anything by whatever kind of experience. There's nothing positive or negative which can shake it or confuse it. This invulnerable mind or state of mind is called Adhammayata, which is the result of seeing Tathāta. Actually, it's the result of seeing impermanence all the way through to thusness. And then there is Adhammayata. Then there won't, for that person who has realized Adamayata, there won't be the words profit in loss or honor and dishonor anymore. This person won't be tricked into these kind of words. There won't be the words positive and negative. There won't even be the words living or not living. And then what problems can exist when there is this 
when there is this atamayada, where could there be any problem? What could be a problem for us? And so this is where our study and practice is completed, is perfected in atamayata. But uh, what's marvelous about all this, about especially atamayata, is that there is still intelligence Bye. to deal with all the situations and responsibilities of life. But now none of these become a problem. There's no more ignorance and attachment turning things into dukkha. And so there re always remains this intelligence, a natural mindfulness and wisdom with which to live life. When there is this level of life, you should understand the meaning of the word arahant. This is the level of life of the arahant, the human being perfected, the human perfected, which we can say is life where nothing wrong can be done, where no errors can be made. This is the ordinary way of speaking. But in Dhamma language, we would say the life where nothing is done, the life where we don't do anything. In ordinary language, if we say that, though, most people get confused. So to put it in simple terms for the ordinary understanding, we can just say life where there are no errors made, where nothing wrong is done. But in Dhamma language, we'd say the life of not doing anything. There's one literary matter to deal with as well. The word da. Properly, all the words, all these insights, the words describing all these insights end with da. Impermanence is anicca da. The, the painfulness is dukkata, anatata, tamatitata, and so on, sunyata, datata, adamayata. This ta, or in English, ta, a long a, t long a, in the Pali language means a state of being. So we've been describing nine states of being, nine realities, or actually nine aspects of realities, that all things exist in these nine da's. However, there's a nice coincidence that in the Thai language, the same sound, da, refers to the, this eyeball, this eye with which we see. And so then we speak of seeing these nine da's. These are the nine dhamma eyes the nine ways of seeing or nine insights. So they're both states of being or facts to be realized. And they are nine ways of seeing, nine ways of looking at and seeing life, the world, oneself. So all nine of these das 
these insights into these states of being make up the first lesson of the fourth tetrad, the tetrad dealing with Dhamma. Strictly, this, tet- this lesson is, refers only to impermanence, to anicetta. But in seeing anicetta, if one truly sees it, one can't help but the insight will develop more and more deeply until encompassing all nine of these dhas. Now the quite marvelous and enormously important result of realizing these nine dhas is that the attachment, the clinging that we have had towards all kinds of different things, the clinging to them as being I and mine, this begins to dissolve, it begins to weaken and fade away. This fading away of attachment, which is a result of realization of the nine das, is called viraka, viraka. This contemplating this fact of viraka, the fading away of attachment, is the object of the second lesson of this final tetrad. Observing, watching, scrutinizing more and more deeply, contemplating this fact of fading away is the second lesson here. Now when things fade away and fade away and fade away, especially when this attachment is fading away, eventually it ends, it's gone, it's finished. Contemplating that the attachment fades away until it ends, until it is quenched or extinguished. This is called nirota. Nirota is this quenching or cessation of attachment. But when attachment is quenched, when attachment ceases, then dukkha ceases, because attachment is the, the cause of all of our dukkha. When that attachment to all these different things as being I and mine fades away and then ends, then all dukkha is quenched, is extinguished. Contemplating this fact, watching that things fade away, fade away until the attachment, that the attachment fades away until it ends, and that thereby dukkha ends. This is the third lesson of this tetrad, contemplating the nirota, the fading away, or the quenching or cessation of dukkha. There's a little phrase here which is quite useful. In Thai it's mot banha. Banha means both problem or trouble and question. Mot is to end or finish. So now at in lesson three, all of our problems end and all of our questions end as well. This is the end or the finish of all of our problems and questions. This is a very nice phrase. It has a very wonderful meaning to that all one's problems in questions end right here. This is where the 
all of our Dhamma practice is leading to, to the ending of all of our problems. All of our questions are ended as well. This comes about through having a Dhammayata, which is the result of realizing impermanence and so on. And so you won't have any more questions to ask others and you won't have questions left to answer yourself, to ask yourself. The reason for this is because you don't have any more problems. When you don't have any more problems, there are no more questions to ask. We can summarize this, this um, kind of life as being clean. It's totally pure. There's nothing dirty or ugly or any or rotten in it. This life is clear. There's clear, comprehensive understanding of all aspects of life. And so everything is clear. And this life is calm. There's a peacefulness. Everything is at peace. Everything is calm. And further, everything is free. There is freedom and independence. This life is above all positive and negative, all ignorance, all illusion all ego and all dukkha. This is the life that is totally above all problems. So we say that it is free or independent. And we can summarize it again by saying that this is the life that is peaceful. Peaceful here means cool, calm peace, which is also the highest happiness. Life is peaceful and it is useful. The life that no longer has any problems is the life that is most useful, both for itself and for others. So we can summarize all of this, all the benefits and results of this as being peaceful and useful. You might think that we would, we ought to be finished by now. But in Anapanasati there is one more lesson, which is to look back and see that we have completed all of our duties, that our highest duty has now been fulfilled. And so we, we look back and then in realizing that we've finished everything that needs to be done, this is the final lesson. Its, its actual name is tossing back or throwing back. We can explain this using the metaphor that so far in life we've all been thieves, robbers, bandits, crooks. We've been stealing things from nature, claiming them, this is mine, this is me. We've been thieves, very wicked, nasty crooks. <laughs> and criminals. But now one recognizes that all of these things, they're, they don't belong to me. And so we toss them back to nature. We throw them back. We give them up. And we not only give them up, we return them and we, we just throw it all back 
to nature. This is why this is called tossing back. So we, we look and see that we've completed all our duties and we acknowledge that by tossing everything back to nature. So in this last lesson, one has thoroughly evaluated the entire system of practice and the results of it. And so the final result is that one is finished. It's done. It's complete. Another way of stating this is the result of this last lesson is that all bhava, all existence is finished. There is no more sexual existence, no more formish existence, and no more formless existence. It's all finished. And so you can remember the housewife, our housewife who we, we spoke of at the very beginning, whose life was filled up with all kinds of burdens, one hour having to do this, one hour having to do that, being burdened with all the different kinds of existence. So a life with many burdens and much dukkha. Now that's all finished. All that existence is finished. And so our housewife doesn't have any more burdens. She doesn't have any more problems. She isn't falling into any of the kinds of existence. There is all the existences are ended. And so there is no more self. There's no more ego, no more me, no self, no soul to carry around these problems. When there's no more ego, there's no more burden. And that means dukkha is finished. And so this, the, our housewife has a life that is truly peaceful and useful. And then for the house husband, it's the same. When all the existences are finished, there's no self to carry any burdens. And then this is, and then our husband and wife here have not wasted their marriage. They're in getting married. They have been, they have fulfilled the meaning of marriage. They have worked together and helped each other to realize the highest purpose in life to the life that is truly peaceful and useful where there are no more there's no more existence no more burdens and dukkha so their marriage has been truly worthwhile there's <clears throat> one other thing to mention but we have to whisper it because we're afraid nobody will believe it so we'll just whisper it quietly. The, the secret that you can actually ordain as a monk or nun, or in Thai we have the word bua, which means to leave home and become a homeless monk. But you can leave home while living at home. This is the secret we'd like to whisper to you. You can leave, leave home while living at home as a husband or wife if you practice in this way. You can leave behind all the problems and all the dukkha of 
having a home and a family and a job and all that by practicing in this way. But we're afraid nobody will believe this, that nobody will take it seriously. But we'd like to whisper to you that you can leave home at, while living at home by practicing anapanasati as we have described. Does it sound a little bit too weird to say that you can renounce the world while living in the world? Does this make any sense to you? You can renounce the world while your body and mind are still living in the world. This is the meaning of emancipation or liberation. When you reach the highest level of practice, then you'll understand what it is to renounce the world while still living in the world. We've spoken for at quite some length to make it very clear and to avoid the misunderstanding that we are not practicing mindfulness of breathing. As it is often called mindfulness of breathing, that's not what we're doing. We're not just scrutinizing the breathing. We're practicing mindfulness with breathing. We're scrutinizing these different objects one by one while breathing in and out. We take up one particular lesson and do this while breathing in and out. So one is not just practicing mindfulness of breathing, but it's mindfulness with breathing. Mindfulness and mindful scrutiny of these 16 things which need to be understood. Not one of them repeats the others. So it's not just doing the same thing over and over again, but there are these 15, 16 different objects. So we have tried to make this very clear, that this is mindfulness with breathing, not mindfulness of breathing. So we hope that you will understand this correctly in order to be able to practice successfully for the highest benefit. Another way to put it is that we have perfect and automatic mindfulness and ready wisdom, sati and sampajanya, every time we breathe in and breathe out. With every inhalation and exhalation, there is automatic mindfulness and ready wisdom. This is what anapanasati, or mindfulness with breathing, is. So thank you all for being very good listeners. You've been very patient. Thank you.